Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September the 21st, 2020. This is episode 2735 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it's going to be a listener roundtable show. We also call these feedback shows, but this one has uh, has been done differently than than I've typically done feedback shows. I guess that's why I've come up with the terminology here. When I when I kind of go out and about and grab things from other places on my own, like MeWe or the Telegram group or my own things from the weekend or whatever, uh, I tend to call them roundtable discussions because they're not just straight, direct feedback, and so shall be today's show. Anyway, here's what we have for you guys today. Number one, a new look at the humble bullhead catfish and shucking them along with proper freezing, etc. That's from... Uh, my adventures this weekend as a partial bachelor, I guess. My wife was out of town for the weekend, and I went fishing. Uh, I also just watched last night when my wife got home. We watched the documentary a lot of you have mentioned called The Social Dilemma. And I had an epiphany about why when you leave a place like Facebook and go to something like Parlor, the real reason it seemed you know, everything actually works pretty much the same, at least on the user interface side, but you just feel like something's missing. And it's actually pretty friggin' nefarious what's going on. And I really recommend that you watch this documentary along with a little bit of a disclaimer that I'll give you when we talk about it. I'll give you the state of alternative social media for me real quick and brief, but I'm pretty much settled in right now on what I'm going to be doing is working with Telegram, Discord, Parlor, MeWe, Library. That's about it. Uh, Gab is a dumpster fire, in my opinion. Um, and I didn't want it to be, but it is. Uh, a listener did some calculations on my design city concept based on 20,000 residents. He did a MeWe. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. Um, some follow-up on sheet mulching for soil improvement. That also came from MeWe. Eh, you seen a pattern here? Maybe these alternative media outlets are a, a good way to... Uh, to get your ideas on the show, just saying. Uh, how Jacks and other crypto wallets work regarding a stable public address is a term that was used in the post, and why you may or may not want this, and why this is not as complicated as it sounds as well. I feel that America is being destabilized in a textbook fashion that America has been using elsewhere for decades. This is ongoing, continual, virtual hatred of my video that I did a couple weeks ago saying get out of the cities. The one I did on a Sunday morning when I said this shit's about to get bad. Um, I really don't think people are seeing this for what it is, and I think it's so obvious. It's so obvious that I... The way I've referred to it today with the guy making a specific comment that generated this bullet point, you know how like you watch a show like Star Trek and they see this uh, event horizon of a black hole and then like the ship moves in to take a closer look at it, and as far as the ship and the captain are concerned, like it's, it's outside of the affected area of the event horizon... And, and they're just sitting there looking at this amazing stellar phenomenon, but they're actually already in the event horizon. It just takes actually a very long time for the black hole to pull you into a tiny thread and destroy everything about you. It, it actually takes really, really long time, so you're kind of stuck there, and until they try to leave, they don't even know they're stuck. It's happening right in front of them, and they don't realize it. That's how I think people are being with the destabilization, destabilization of America. And what I have to tell you is I don't think we're going to put a stop to it. We're not going to fight back. This is a mega trend shift. 
and all we can do is be prepared to deal with it as it comes and figure it out and go and how we're going to deal with it as it goes. Because I don't think the people behind it are going to stop what they're doing, and I don't think you're going to stop them either. And I think all of the ideas for how we're going to stop them are... Do not understand the problem. I think if you understand the problem, you realize that like none of those things actually are going to fix anything. Um, now is the time to think frugal versus cheap. This came from the Telegram group. Uh, industries that you can expect to grow in the coming years. I'm going to say some thoughts on that. That's also from Telegram. And I don't think it's going to be as, as simple as here's an industry. I, I think this is going to have to be much more, much more of an improvise, adapt, and overcome as it happens than it is going to be to get out ahead of it that far uh, for the average person anyway. Choosing between a double-wide mobile home and stick-built homes Uh, that came from an email, and I, I think that probably has to do with my comments about a friend last week on Friday, where I told him, hey, just buy a mobile home for cash. I'll say a little bit about the good, the bad, and the ugly with mobile homes. Why stick-built homes aren't necessarily built that much better in some ways, and what you really should be asking yourself is, based on my budget, my goals, my timeline, etc., which type of house is best for me? And planning for climate change when it comes to growing your own food. This is also from Telegram. Uh, this is about going into the grand solar minimum that we're, we're heading into right now. We're about to begin our next solar cycle. In fact, it's already begun. And um, the last one had very little activity. Sunspots are what we're talking about here. And this one is expected to have less. But I'm going to tell you why when it comes to climate change, you should always be prepared and you should never worry. That's, that's the best way I can explain this because this is another one of those things that what's going to happen is going to happen. And it, whether man's involved or whether this is just natural cycles, which is what I think it is more than the other thing, it doesn't matter. You need to be prepared because you can believe as much as you want that the planet is warming because of CO2. And we can have a major shift in climate and the temperature could dramatically get colder. You could believe that the, the the new monitor minimum is upon us, and it's about to get a lot colder, and it could get a lot warmer. And both of those things can happen in, in ways that have very little to do with human activity, specifically carbon dioxide. Now, I believe there are some things that we're doing to the planet that are really bad for the planet, really bad. But nobody seems to want to talk about those. Nobody wants to talk about those. No, they want to talk about regulating the air you fart and the air you exhale. We'll talk about why you've got to take a different approach when it comes to this. If you're going to be a sustainable homesteader or a farmer or a market gardener, how you need to think. And it's actually a really simple solution. I know it doesn't sound like a simple solution, but it is. It's a completely simple solution. And we'll tell you all about it in just a minute. Before we do, let's start off with our quote of the day. This by Buckminster Fillor, who I think is one of the most brilliant human beings who's ever lived. One of the most underrated thinkers of all time. He said one thing about this spaceship we're on we call Spaceship Earth. The most important thing about Spaceship Earth, an instruction book, didn't come with it. If you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. If You, you look at something like the human race. I, I, I believe, just to be clear when I say what I'm about to say, there are other civilizations and life forms other places in the universe. That The law of numbers dictates that. And we are probably children in the grand scheme of things, on how advanced some civilizations are. And to other, some other you know, life forms, we might be the most advanced thing that they could even conceive of. So we're somewhere in the middle or bottom end. But as far as known life forms, 
We are the most advanced minds in the universe, as far as what we know and, and, and our knowledge of, of life forms. We have the ability to radically transform our planet for good or for ill. We have the ability to clear metric shit tons of timber in weeks. We have the ability to dig holes that are bigger than the largest volcanic craters in, a, in, a, in a, just a few years. We have the ability to depopulate our oceans of the fish that swim in them. We have all of these abilities that are detrimental. We also have the ability to increase fertility dramatically on our planet. We have the ability to grow more food than, 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 than even the billions of people on this planet could ever need. We have the ability with very simple management techniques to produce not only lots of food, but make the planet better. We have both of those abilities. And no instruction book came with it. Even the world's religions that claim that God gave us a book, no matter which revealed religion you're talking about, they might give a little passing thing here and there about taking care of the land or taking care of people. But there's no manual. There's no, hey, you really shouldn't do this, and you absolutely should do this. And yet we have this mind that is capable of so much that can be used for good or for bad. Wouldn't it be great if there was an instruction manual? And I would, I would submit the closest thing we have to an instruction manual is the permaculture design manual. I do not think it should be elevated to a holy book. I do not think we should look at it and say, we must do exactly what this says in chapter 7, verse 3, you know, through 12 by Mollison and in his letters to the, the Landites or something. Like, I don't think we should do that. But I think it's a guidebook of where to start. It's probably the best thing that we have. And we'll talk about that in a bit when we talk about my design city and some back-of-the-napkin calculations uh, a listener did in the MeWe TSP group. All right. Next, I wanted to talk to you about the humble bullhead catfish. The humble bullhead catfish. So this is a fish that some people love and many people hate. They refer to them as bait stealers, though I don't really consider the bullhead a bait stealer unless you're talking about very, very tiny ones, and then you just need to move or use different bait. Uh, bullheads have a giant head. That's why they call them bullheads, and they eat things very quickly. Um, I went out this weekend with a, a goal to reconnect with one of my childhood loves, which is bullhead fishing. And I was able to, uh, I got 10 keepers on Saturday and two big channel catfish out of a pond that they have no business being in. I don't know if the city threw some in there or something, but these were like three-pound fish. Um, And I was totally blown away by catching them. I saw one other uh, gentleman catch one, and a kid told me he had caught one a couple hours earlier, and he sounded like a bullshitter, but then he pulled his phone out and showed me a picture of it, and sure enough, it was about the same as the two I'd caught. Um, we'll put those on the shelf, though, and we'll talk about them maybe in the future. Um, the bullheads themselves, you know, these are small fish. They're 10, 11-inch fish is a good keeper size for a bullhead. And of that, about three inches is head. And there's just nothing there. It's it's giant. It's it's half the weight or more of the fish, and and you know a third of the length. And when it comes to filleting fish, catfish are one of the least efficient fish to fillet that there is. It's why kind of my rule on channel catfish is I don't generally keep them under about 18 inches. Like 18 to 24 inches is like a perfect size. Like 24 to 36 inch catfish is where I will start to stake them, and much bigger than that, believe it or not, I'll let them go because they, uh, they're the breeders of the next round of monsters, you know. When it comes to the bullhead, though, you're talking about a fish that, like, a pound and a half is a big one. 
It's a huge one. They're, now, I think the world record of the three, there's brown, yellow, and black. I think the world record of the, of the one that gets the biggest, which I think is the black, is like seven or eight pounds. That's a huge bullhead. But, you know, as a kid in Florida, the, the larger ones were easier to come by than they were here. And an average fish was still about 11 to 12 inches. And when you try to skin, when you try to fillet that fish, you end up with very small fillets, very small fillets, and it takes a lot of time because you have to work around that stupid bony ass head. Well, there's a method that I learned a couple years ago, and I'm still learning it myself because I just haven't practiced that much. I haven't caught that many of them yet, um, but it's called shucking. And I have a link in a video today where you can see how to do it. But basically, that little tab fin that's uh, that's on the back tail right before the you know you come up from the tail fin, there's that little tab. You put your knife behind that and you cut a line in the back up to the uh, the spine, the first top spine, and you kind of bend that spine up and then you you break the backbone. You take the tip of your knife and you cut through the backbone right behind that stinger. Um, and you have to be careful when you do that that you don't cut into the to the skin on either side. You're only cutting the backbone. And you kind of break it and stick your finger in there and pull it out. And you can grab it with a pair of pliers or just the tip of a knife, and you just pull. And if you do everything right, and it does work, I'd say about half of mine work perfectly, and about half of them I have to do something else to, to fix my screw-up. Um, what you end up with is a head and all the guts and the skin in one hand and a little whole catfish meat stick in the other. And the only thing there is the backbones. And a little bit of rib bones will, will stay. And you got to be careful when you eat them. But you, you just cut, cut some slits in them, hit them with some of that redfish magic seasoning, and grill them, especially if you put a little pellet smoke action next to them. I mean, they are one of the best eating things I've ever had. And they have a firm flesh, and they're delicious. And no, they don't eat mud, and they don't eat their own shit, and that's not what they do. And everybody that says that has no idea what you're talking about. None. Zero. And I guarantee you if I made this for you, unless you don't like fish, you would enjoy it. If you'll eat channel catfish, you'll eat bullhead. I'll, I'll put it that way. And I actually think bullheads taste a little bit better, especially done this way cooked on the bone. When you eat them, they're not worth pulling the meat off the bone with a fork. You pick them up and eat them like a chicken wing. And they're one of the most fantastic little things. About five make a good meal of that kind of like 10-inch, 9-inch, 10-inch size fish. And the only place you have to worry about bones at all is those little rib bones. So there's a little bit of meat that will come off around the rib bones. And you can play with that if you want to. Uh, Channel Cats always cut the belly out, and you get like a belly. They call them catchfish nuggets if you buy them in a store. They come from the belly pouch. Bullheads is just not enough to be worthy of. Just that little piece. And you just pick it up, and you just pull the meat right off the bone with your teeth. They're fantastic. Somebody said something in MeWe about you have to eat them fresh. If you freeze them, they're just terrible. That's not true. Uh, someone also said elsewhere, I think it was on Parlor, that the problem with them is that if you catch them in the summertime when the water's warm, the meat is real soft and mushy. Also not true. Both of those things can be true, though. It's all about handling. So what you're, what you're dealing with when any fish that should be firm is mushy is water. It's, that's, that's what you're dealing with. That's what you're dealing with. There's nothing else you're dealing with because that's the only thing that can make that happen. And this is another like situation where like whiting, which are actually called Gulf Kingfish, uh, very, very popular with saltwater anglers who know what they're doing. 
because they're easy to catch, they're good to eat, and you can keep as many as you want. There's no size limit, right? You can't hurt the population. That's what's nice about bullheads. So you can eat as many as you want. You're never going to really hurt the population of bullheads unless you're talking about a very small body of water and you get stupid with it. And then it's still probably going to come back when you give up because there's going to be a million little ones in there that you can't find that are going to start growing up and grow really fast when they don't have to compete for food. So it's almost like the best thing you can do for the fishery with bullheads is take some. Same with whiting. But whiting are also a fish that people say, well, in the winter they're great, in the summer they're not. Or if you freeze them, they're mushy. Again, this is water. So what makes water come out of meat? The answer is salt. So all you have to do with your little bullheads is usually people set a bowl when you're doing the shucking method, bowl of ice water, and as that fish comes out, you throw, you know, you throw the little bodies in there and you throw your heads away. Okay? Put salt in the water. Not a lot. You know, just salted water. Water, if you tasted it, it would taste a little bit salty. And that will draw a bunch of blood out when you first clean the fish, right? The next thing you do is after they've sat in there for a little while, rinse them off. And if you're going to cook them right away, sprinkle a little salt, just a little salt on both sides of them. Don't salt cake them. You shouldn't taste much salt when you eat them. Just a little salt and let them sit for about half an hour to an hour before you cook them. Then season them with whatever you're going to season them and cook them. If you want to freeze them, take something like a cookie sheet with an air dryer rack. You know, the little racks for drying cookies. So you set that inside the, the half cookie sheet. And that way, when it drips, it will not go, like, make your, your refrigerator all skanky and stinky. Put a little salt on them. Flip them over. Put a little salt on them. Set them in the refrigerator overnight. This will give them a really good sweating. Towel dry them. Throw them in Ziploc bags or freezer bags or, you know, uh, vacuum seal bags or whatever in whatever number you want per package in your freezer, freeze them. And when you, when you cook that fish, it will not have a mushy consistency at all. Because the only thing that makes fish that are not, again, fish that are not supposed to be mushy, mushy. Because some fish, just you, you have to be very careful with how you cook them. But the only thing that does it is there's too much water in the flesh. And this is an interesting thing to do with even fish that you buy. Like a cod or a haddock or something like that. You know, that's generally kind of a firm flesh fish, but you take your fish out, snapper, I don't care what you buy, any fish. Like, the only fish I wouldn't do this with is, like, mahi, because it's already so firm. Anything with like a mahi or a swordfish I wouldn't do it with. But feel the feel the the consistency of the fish. Salt it, and I don't mean heavily. Again, just a little light sprinkling of salt. Let it sit for 15, 20 minutes, and then feel the consistency of it again. It will dramatically firm up when you do this. It's just a chef technique that's been used on a lot of other fish as well. So anyway, I challenge you to take a look at this video on shucking bullheads and give the humble bullhead another shot if you are a fisherman. Uh, it is nice to have a fish that you can find in so many bodies of water all across the country um, that you can go fish for, that you can take 50 home and not really hurt the fishery if you want to, if you want to clean that many. I usually take, you know, 10, 15, 20 at the most. I can do the shucking in about one minute of fish, the guys that are good at doing it in 15 seconds, I shit you not. And uh, I, I, I will get better at it. I just have a, a, a bad habit of cutting into that skin or not getting my big-ass finger in there to pull it out right, I guess. But give it a shot. Next, my wife and I watched a show that a bunch of you emailed me about. It's on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. And I had a, an epiphany. This is worth watching. I'm going to tell you that all the people speaking in it, are people that actually built these and worked on these social media platforms saying what's wrong with them, even though they're the ones that built them. 
The important thing is that industry is rife with leftism, and even though they're telling the truth about social media, they're very leftist, and the whole thing comes off smacking of leftism, just so you know. It doesn't change the core message about the problem. And I had an epiphany when I was watching this. It was a pretty simple one, but it was pretty dramatic. I've said that, you know, like when I go to MeWe and I use MeWe, I don't, I feel like there's just something not there. Like it's okay, it works, it does everything it's supposed to. Really wish everything was public and that people could just see my profile and all my posts before they joined. I think that would be helpful. Other than that, it, it works exactly like, it's like Facebook, except it doesn't have live video. That's about the only thing missing, and in some ways it functions better, but it just seems like something's missing. And I've never been able to put my finger on it. And I was saying, that I, I, I kind of feel the same way about Parler versus Twitter. And I know some people are like, it's a right-wing political echo chamber. Then post about shit that's not right-wing or political. And find people doing that. It's only an echo chamber if you echo, okay? Um, but it still seems like something's missing. And I realize I love debate. That's what I, it doesn't matter if you do. You love something. And what these algorithms are designed to do, and see what people think is, in Facebook, you're seeing in your feed what you want to see in your feed because you've chosen to. I've said for, for years that's not the case, but I never really put my finger on how manipulative it is and how it controls you. Facebook is using multifaceted algorithms. In other words, there's an algorithm looking for the chance to give you an ad, and there's an algorithm looking to cause you to have engagement with other people. And there's an algorithm designed to just further your overall activity, including when you're scrolling and you don't comment, but you stop and look at a picture instead of scrolling right past it, measuring how long you look at that picture. And all three of these algorithms are working together, and they, 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 they characterize them as three guys plotting against you, which is kind of what they are, except there's not actually three people there. And like going, okay, we just made 3.62 cents off of a click from him. And if it was people, you couldn't afford to spend that much effort to make 3.62 cents off of a click for one person. But with a computer bank, you can. What this means, here's the epiphany. What this means is you're getting a dopamine response, like an addict, to the activity that you're partaking in, specifically because it's not showing you what you said you wanted to see, but what it wants you to see. And the way that's different, if you look at Parler and MeWe as, as the two platforms that I actually like the best, but I guess I'm still adapting to becoming a withdrawn addict from Twitter and Facebook, they specifically do not do that. All they do is show you everything that you've subscribed to in the order that you've subscribed to, or in, in the order that it's come in. So if I'm following a thousand people and 300 people post something, I'll see all 300 of them in order based on when they posted it. That's all that it is. And people say, oh, my God, then there's too much content. No, that's not true. That's not true. Because I'm telling you right now, it doesn't happen to me. And if it doesn't happen to me, it ain't happening to you. I real quickly go, hey, that's all the new stuff. Nothing interests me. Something did interest me. But they're not making a determination yet anyway. Oh, Jack liked this, and he commented on this, and he shared that. How do we use that to keep Jack active? Parler's not doing that. MeWe's not doing that. They don't have that level of sophistication built into the platform. In other words, they're non-manipulative platforms. I'm not saying that they are angels sent from heaven to do wonderful things. I'm saying for now, they are doing what social media claims to do, allowing you to communicate with other people and see content you say you want to see. And if you don't like the content you're seeing, that's your fault. 
where Facebook is going, okay, like they have an algorithm that's literally saying this person has been inactive for much longer than is typical. What can we do to spur more activity? And because of that, you're getting not what you want, but in some ways you're getting what you like. And that's very drug-like. So I definitely recommend this, this uh, documentary. And I'm telling you, I have never been so happy that I'm off Facebook. I've never, when I saw that last night, I was like, oh my God. So anyway, you can do what you want with that. On alternative social media, here's where I'm at. I like Telegram. I do not participate that much in the chat because it's like tons of people all going ape shit with no categories. But some people seem to love it. So, hey, I'm happy to provide it and make it there and what have you. But I do use it. Like today, I jumped in there and said, hey, you got five minutes for ideas for today's show. Go. And I picked three of them. So I'm using it. I'm just not in there on a conversation on a regular break. But I'll pop in, see something, and respond to it here and there. And I think that's a cool thing, and it doesn't make it's not addictive. I like that. Uh, Discord is like Telegram, except everything's categorized. So there's channels, and it's much more organized. And if you just want to follow a few channels, you can just follow a few channels within the TSP server. Don't let those things confuse you because they're not complicated. Um, they're really easy to use, and I have a link to all of these things today. Uh, oh, Telegram also the channel. We did a discussion on MeWe about who likes what for staying in touch uh, as far as getting away from Facebook or whatever, as far as TSP is concerned. And a lot of people love the Telegram channel. So the Telegram channel is where I just tell you, hey, there's a new episode. Hey, there's a new this. Hey, there's a new that. It's not two-way communication. So it's, you know, two to five texts a day. People seem to really like that. Uh, that's actually growing faster than the group. Uh, Discord, again, is like a lot like Telegram, except it's on its own app or in a browser and it is broken down into channels. So there's a channel for permaculture. There's a channel for walking to freedom. There's a channel for general. There's a channel for cooking, etc. And and that, that makes the discussions easier. To, and there's a really great search functionality to it. So you can basically search a channel within the overall Discord server group. It's pretty cool. Um, Parler, it is mostly political. I, I don't know why people are surprised by this, because it was founded to court people who were kicked out of Facebook and Twitter for saying political things that were right-leaning. Duh. But what you get with numbers, sheer numbers of people, is people start sharing all kinds of cool things. That's how Facebook and Twitter worked at the beginning, too. Like They were specific to certain things, and then they branched into everything because of numbers alone. And I'll tell you this, the... Uh, The founder, John, of, of Parler, sh like shared a, a parlay this weekend. It was him transplanting his banana plants from his greenhouse out to his property and tagged it Garden Club. So even the founder is in the gardening. So, I mean, it's, it is what you make of it. I like it. I'm going to keep using it. MeWe is becoming really the new home of TSP on, in social media. I would say so more than any of the other platforms, and I will continue to check in there. Library, I just like the idea of it. People view my videos. I put them on YouTube. They end up there. I put a little short video up on the, on the porch this week, me hanging out with the dogs. And I was listening to Van Morrison, and YouTube took it down due to a copyright violation. When I get a chance, I'll put it on the library channel. Since it never went live on YouTube, uh, I don't think it ever ended up over on uh, library. But library is cool. I'm going to start making I, I, I was doing it for a while, and I kind of get lazy. 
and I need to make sure I'm grabbing library links for all the videos I do when I send out the email and, 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 and Telegram channel and all. So that's, that's where we're at with that. Gab is a dumpster fire. I am not going to take my Gab profile down, but I mean, I, it doesn't seem like anything's going anywhere over there, so I'll just leave it, and I'm not going to put any effort into it. And if it ever, I don't know, it's buggy as shit, it has terrible display issues, I put something up, it'll get one like or no, and a, a one comment or no comments and no shares, and I, I don't know. It just seems like nobody's really excited about using it, and it seems like it is, you want to talk about right-wing extremism, that seems like the main demographic over there. Uh, next up. A listener did some calculations on my idea for a city based on the number of, I said 20 to 50,000. He decided, what would this look like with a city of 20,000 people? I'm not going to re-go through my idea for a modern city, a small city. Uh, if you want to hear that, you can listen to Friday's show, which was uh, episode 2734. Anyway, this is uh, what he came up with. Um, this is from Peter uh, in the uh, TSP group on MeWe. Did some calculation on the overall size of Jack Spierko's city idea. Input, city population 20,000, village populations 250 per village, family size 7, I'm thinking three-generational family, family. Uh, max walking time to center of village 10 minutes, output, maximum distance to center of village a half mile, area per person about 2 acres, area per family about 14 acres, areas per village about 502 acres, Families per village, 35.7. Area of the city, 40,000 acres. Families in the city, 2,857. I would definitely live in the city. That actually makes me think we have to revisit some of this a little bit because that's a lot of space for that number of people. I don't have a problem with that, but I don't know if it's as doable as I would like. Um, now, area per person at two acres, that's not two acres per person to live on. That's two acres of area because there's a lot of nature strips and things like that and parks, et cetera, and you know, industry and, and stuff built into that. Um, but overall, I really like the idea. Now, Mark said, how did you calculate the 20,000 within 10 minutes of walking the center of the town? And he said, not the, and then Peter said, not the town center, but a village center, a subsection of the city, but I used a three-mile-an-hour walking speed. So they had a kind of a discussion about that, and where would an airport go, where would heavy industry go? And I would think in a city of 20,000, you would have very little to no heavy industry. It's just not the size of a city that generally does, but you would be somewhere on the outskirts of the city, and that would, that's just how that normally goes. An airport would be the same type of thing, and I would think that you would, wherever you, you put your airport, if you were to put a small airport into a town of this size, You would put it to the side of the town, north, south, east, west of the town, where you would be able to route airline routes directly away from the city instead of flying over the city and over everybody's houses, just for noise control. Because remember, we're building this, for those who didn't hear Friday's show about it, from a blank slate. We're not talking about going in and taking over somebody else's place and turning it into uh, the city we want. We're talking about building a city. I, I do think that maybe the land area here is a bit large. 40,000 acres is bigger than most people, I think, can get their head around. But it may be that that works. I don't know. This is something, again, we need to do more calculations with. But my thought was, you know, um, when, when he did the calculation, if you did lay this out exactly this way, what would be the maximum walking time? to the actual downtown 
uh, city. Um, and here is what he came up with for that. For some reason that was hard to find. Anyway, he said, if you built this as a circular city, it would be about nine miles across. And maybe it isn't as big as I'm thinking then. Um, but at three miles per hour of walking speed, which is a standard kind of walking speed, if you were at the very edge of the city and wanted to walk to downtown in a straight line, it would take about one and a half hours. Uh, that's, that's a pretty good walk. If you rode a bike at 10 miles an hour, it would take 26 minutes. 26 minutes to a center of town that's designed to be bike-friendly? Not a really long bike ride to get to downtown. My point with that, too, though, was imagine the... Because uh, remember I said if, if you wanted to do public transportation, my big problem with most public transportation in most cities is it, it generally goes to places people don't go from people places people aren't. Like Dallas's DART system has got $9 billion put into it, and no one uses it. And even though you're supposed to pay money, you can pretty much use it for free because it's so poorly policed. Even though DART has its own police force, like you can just get on a train and not pay and get away with it, and nobody uses it. I don't even say nobody uses it. It's nowhere nearly used sufficiently to justify its existence because we have the largest, one of the largest airports in the world in Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, two major cities, and you didn't even connect the two major cities in the airport. Like, that would be the first thing you would do. Now, thinking a little bit differently, if what you wanted to do is make downtown accessible, kind of your city center accessible to people, 12 straight lines that go in like a clock, and you call them the one line, the two line, the three line, you get it all the way around to, you know, 11, because you wouldn't really have a 12. Because uh, 1 and 12 would be, well, no, 12 would be the, the top, so you got 12, 1, 2, 3, like a clock, all the way around. Why am I thinking screwed up like that? Anyway, so you, you would have your... your 12 lines, and they could be self-driving. Depending on the size of the city, how much people use it, they could be self-driving buses that go in a straight line in and a straight line out almost completely. They could be completely automated, and they could very quickly, you could come up with, for operational expenses, that they're only available at certain times based on when people actually use them. I mean, and then you would have a situation where anybody could probably be in downtown in less than 25 minutes walking, and probably very quickly could get to visit anybody else in any other village very quickly as well, very efficiently. And then you would probably have a natural less use of cars. I don't think people are like, I want a car so I can drive everywhere that I ever go. They, they love to drive a car because it works. Because when I want to go somewhere, I can go there. That's And, and there's no real convenient in most places other option. But with Ubers, Lyfts, automated Ubers, and a basic system like that, it could be pretty cool. Again, I don't claim to have a master design of this down. These are just some ideas I'm throwing out, and I'm kind of priming the pump because I want to do a mastermind uh, kind of session about this um, for the workshop, like one of the breakout sessions. Just get anybody that wants to do it, and we'll get a whiteboard, and we'll just start going and figure out, like, is, this, is it all pie-in-the-sky bullshit, or is there actually a way to do this? And uh, we'll, we'll go from there. So someone also asked on MeWe about sheet mulching and said, hey, you know, I got clay soil, and I know Jack one time talked about laying stuff down in a specific order and specific things to lay down and how that would improve your soil. And, you know, does anybody remember what episode it is? And I don't remember, so probably nobody else does either. And I'm sure there's more than one. Here's the thing about sheet mulching. Unless you use something like poison, you almost can't do it wrong. You almost can't do it wrong. If you just pile up lots of organic matter and keep doing it, eventually you'll improve soil. If all you do is lay down wood chips, 
you lay down four, eight inches of wood chips and wait. And as it starts to like remediate into the soil, just keep laying more on top of it. If that's all you did, it will get much better. There's things, and I'm going to give you some things you can do to make it work even better. But that's an example of what you could do. Now, let's decide what we're trying to do. Are we trying to just make it better, or are we trying to make it better for a garden, and there's a bunch of stuff growing there, and we don't want that stuff to grow? Because if that stuff grows, it's going to be a big mess, and we're going to have to deal with it. What I would do, if it was me, especially this time of year, where you're probably not planning on starting your garden anytime soon, you're just getting it ready. And this, I would do the same thing if I wanted to plant a bunch of trees in kind of a permaculture orchard or something like that, or a bunch of berries or whatever. Um, I would get, assuming this area is not you know 10 acres, we're talking about a, a garden plot size acreage, I would go get heavy uh, plastic vapor barrier black from Home Depot Lowe's. You can get the lightweight stuff too, but I just find the heavier weight stuff's probably worth doing. Um, Because you can cut that stuff into smaller pieces, fold it up, put it away, and use it to individually like suppress weeds in the future. Just lay it out and, and weight it down for a couple weeks. But I would I would tarp it one way or another and kill everything by denying sunlight to it for at least two to three weeks. That's where I would start. And then I would, while that's going on, if you can get access to cardboard, I would get enough cardboard to do at least one layer, if not two layers of cardboard for that area. Now, I'm giving you, again, you can just throw wood chips down, and it will work, okay? It will work, and I'm giving you kind of like, here's an idea for like a really great way to do it, if you want to take it to kind of over-the-top level. I would lay down two layers of cardboard. Before I laid down that cardboard, I would feed my soil with dry molasses. So I would take and just sprinkle it almost like you were seeding grass in that area using the dry molasses. And I would also feed my soil organisms with something that they can eat. Old chicken feed, bad grain, whatever. One of the best things for this is the pelletized sweet feed. That'll give you more of a sugar kick, but it gives you all of that protein, all of that organic matter, etc. for worms and critters to eat. And I would lay that down fairly heavy. Um... I can't tell you how much, but I can tell you that when I did this for my garden beds, I used about a half a bag of feed to my four beds, and my four beds are 12 by 12 in the back, 8 by 8 in the front, and they're done in a right angle. So they have the back goes 12 feet and then a right angle up and four foot, and then back eight so that they make that bed space. And I don't remember the square footage. And I used about a half a bag, and I didn't figure out that. I just kind of like took a scoop and spread it out, and it was like I was very heavily seeding peas or something like that and so I would put that down as well and you might want to at that point throw down some straw on the direct dirt as well more organic material already directly in contact with the earth then lay down your two layers of cardboard and it needs to be soaked sopping wet to where you can take a finger and you can push through it Okay. remember we've already killed most of the stuff that can germinate here now Then we're going to mulch on top of that. What are you going to mulch with? Depends on what you have. If you had your druthers, like you could have anything you want, I would go with about two inches of good compost. Now, that'd be great compost. You know, your commercial quality compost that you can get in bulk, you know, buy by the yard. Then I would do about four inches loosely, kind of strewn about 
straw. And then I would do about four inches of wood chips on top of that. And I'd just wait till spring to plant it. And I'm telling you right now, when you go to plant that in the spring, you'll be able to stick your hand down it to at least your wrist. And that's all you'll have to do. But it, it, that's just one way. What I'm, real, what I'm really going to do if I'm dealing with that situation is what do I have available to me that's easy to get that I can create kind of that layered approach with and am I necessarily going to kill all the weeds and all the grass? It depends. Am I growing trees? Man, eh, trees can outcompete grass. In fact, the more the trees grow, the more shade they get, the more they'll outcompete the grass. So then I might just throw down a bunch of wood chips for a while. You know, it, it depends. What do I do? I have a piece of plastic somewhere that fits the area. Well, I might as well kill all the grass. You know, I, another thing I can do is I can take a chicken. If I have chickens, I can put a chicken tractor in there and run that chicken tractor longer than I normally would per section and cover the whole area with the chickens tearing it up. And then after the chickens tear it up, I can still tarp it to kill anything that's left because I I really don't like using chickens to the point where there's nothing left, right? So I can still tarp it, let all that die, then I can do what I said already. I mean, there's a lot of ways to do this, but in the end, if you put a thick layer of organic material on the earth, what happens underneath is almost inevitably good. What I don't like to use, hay, especially alfalfa hay or um, Bermuda grass hay, it inevitably packs... It becomes this slippery, gooey, glee nastiness, and it stinks, and stink equals anaerobics. And anaerobics is bad. Uh, it's one of the few places I disagree with Howard Garrett. He's like, well, if it goes, or, or, if it goes a little uh, anaerobic there, it's not really a problem. One of the things I learned from Elaine Ingham, who knows more about soil than just about any other person on the planet, is anaerobes are not your friend. Anaerobic... Uh, uh, critters are exactly the thing you do not want in your soil if you want fertility. You want aerobic critters uh, of all levels of the soil food web. That means there, that doesn't mean there won't be any anaerobes there, but you want a way heavy, disproportionate aerobic environment. And so then we don't want to go seeding the land with anaerobes. That's that's not the way we want to go. And I've just found hay to almost inevitably become this nastiness. Now, maybe there's some way to change that. Uh, straw costs less. I would rather use straw. If you're worried about straw being treated, then use leaves. You know, use leaves. In fact, I would say you can do this any way you want. Take that area, kill or don't kill the grass with a tarp. Then lay down your, your, your animal feed, you know, your, your used chicken feed or your just... I mean, you can go get... A, a bag of sweet feed for about seven bucks at the feed store. So spread that out. That's feeding worms. And it's like ringing a dinner bell for them. And then lay down four or five inches of leaves and then lay down some wood chips on top of the leaves. Or, you know, I mean, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what you do. You're going to end up with the same result. I use the crap out of aquatic floating vegetation, specifically water lettuce, because it grows in all my ponds. And I just I have to remove it because it gets too thick. And I just constantly just throw it in the garden beds. Sometimes I'm doing a new bed and I have a lot of it available, so I will put a bunch of it in there. I'll let, I'll let it go a day or two because as the water comes out of it, what started off is like six inches of it. It's like a half inch of it. And then I'll put wood chips on top of it. I'll do that. I'll also just throw a bunch around a, a pepper plant when I just need to take a few handfuls out. There's, no, there's really no wrong way to do this. 
It's, it's the way nature does it. If you go into a forest, if you're standing in a field, you, you dig the dirt and it's like shitty compacted dirt in that field, but there's a woodland edge. Odds are if you go 10 feet into those woods and pull back the leaf clutter, that soil down there is beautiful, humus, black, rich with humic acid, smells good, crumbly structure. All that happened is leaves fell off the trees, branches fell off the trees, fungus and rot took over, nature's compost, nature's soil critters took over. That's all that it is. That's all we're emulating. So don't make this hard. Just sit with a an understanding of what are your assets you have available to you or things you can acquire cheaply, what are you trying to accomplish, and how far do you need to go to get to what you want so that you're not doing work or spending money you don't need to. Another thing that came up on MeWe, and there was pretty good answers to it, but I thought this would be a question other people's had, so I'm going to go real quick with it, but I recommend the Jax wallet. Jax.io is where you can get it, J-A-X-X.io. I recommend it because I use it and it works. I'm not people are like. Well, this is better or that's better. Well, then use it. I don't care what you use. They pretty much all, if they're a multi-currency wallet, they all work the same way. Now there are some currencies that have currency-specific wallets and don't have a lot of multi-currency wallets you can use them in. So there's like one wallet you can hold. You know, Jacks. You can hold Bitcoin Cash. You can hold Bitcoin. You can hold Ethereum. You can hold basic attention co uh, tokens. You can hold uh, Dash. You can. Hold, there's a bunch of shit. I think. Tons of stuff. Some currencies, especially certain privacy coins, if you want to use the privacy functions, you have to use their native wallet, or some of them you just have to use a native wallet. Okay? Um, but what the question was is, if I want to receive Bitcoin, then I need to provide a Bitcoin address, correct? Absolutely. So if you give somebody a Dash address... And they try to send Bitcoin to it. That's a bad idea. I'm not going to get into what happens, but it might just be that nothing happens and the money's gone and no one has it on either side and it's gone forever. Um, but what this person said is, since I've explained how Dash works, that every time I say I want to receive money, let's say Bitcoin, it'll give me an address. And let's say you send me money. Okay, that money goes to that address. And it's held there. And now I have control of it. I don't own it. Very important that we remember that. You don't own cryptocurrency. You own control of cryptocurrency. You own some numbers that let you move some stuff around. You can't possess cryptocurrency. It's impossible. There's nothing to hold on to. There's nothing to touch. There's, it's, you, you're, you're buying a code, or you're receiving a code, or you're creating a code, two keys that go together and make it now where you can make it go somewhere else. Okay, That's just a legal issue. Um, And the reason you would do that is that way you have a certain degree of anonymity because Bill sends coins, let's just say address A, and then Sue sends me some Bitcoin to address B, and then Bobby sends me some Bitcoin to C, and Billy sends me to some to D address, right? Now, I have all of those Bitcoins or fractions of Bitcoins, and if I send them somewhere else, they might be coming a little bit from Bill and, and, and Tom or who knows. It doesn't matter, but it makes it very difficult to kind of track down. Well... What this person wants to do is say, on my website, send money to this address. Okay. You can use any of those those addresses. So when I say I want to receive, and, and Jax generates a new address for me, and it's address A, and it's really this long, weird character, you know, randomized character's address. But address A will work for me for as long as I have that wallet. That You can send that 
you can send me Bitcoin at that address a year from now. And I could have used 20 other addresses. It still works. As long as I control the keys to that address through that wallet. So you can do it. The only thing is, now if you get into a point where the government is determining how much Bitcoin might you have there, Bill, if they know that they can associate that address with you, since it's on a public ledger, they can say, from this date to this date, this address received X amount of Bitcoin. And this address sent Y amount of Bitcoin out. So it, it, it makes things very, very public if someone knows to kind of check things out and look at it. As soon as, and a computer can do this very quickly. They have these algorithms, like we were talking about with social media, that can immediately like associate currencies with domain names and people if it's ever been listed that way publicly. So it's not that it's a bad thing. It's just that that's what you're doing. Where you can also do something that's more like, click here to buy, I want to pay with Bitcoin, okay. And you can either use an automated tool that immediately generates an address from your wallet or some sort of payment gateway that does that, or it can say, well, I'll get in touch with you. Like, it depends on what you're doing. If you're selling 100 items a day in an e-commerce model, you probably don't want to manually touch those. But if you're selling something like a membership or something, you might, you know, you, and you, you, know, you do 10% of your business in crypto, and that's just an opportunity for you, like, hey, We'll get in touch with you and, and, and send you an address, depending on what crypto you want to use. So then you just generate a new Dash address and send them an e Hey, send it here. So it's, it's however you want to do it. But my big thing with using Jax to get started, none of this is that important. All we're doing is commerce with other people on a kind of first-name basis. That's, that's where to get started here, because all of a sudden then you become a user of crypto, cryptocurrency. So you start doing business in it. You're both buying and selling with it. You're actually doing what it was designed to do. Instead, I want to buy a bunch of Bitcoin and wait for it to go to the moon and buy two Lamborghinis. But when you, when you generate that address, that's your address, and it will work for multiple transactions. You don't have to generate a new one each time. There's just a lot of reason to do so. And I should point out, I don't know if there's any other currencies on JAX, but for some reason, it doesn't do that with Ethereum. Whatever Ethereum address you have on your JAX wallet, is the Ethereum address you will always have on that Jack's wallet unless they've changed it, and I haven't noticed that they have. Next up, I want to go quick on this, and I've talked a lot about getting out of the cities and things like that, but I just I, I want to kind of give you a higher-level view of the problem that we're in right now and what's going to happen. And, uh, again, I keep getting a lot of pushback on this. We need to fight. What if our founders were like you and they all ran away? Well, again, our founders, when they put together a military force, built an entire military campaign on running away. That's exactly how the United States became free. We attacked the British and we ran away. And we made them chase us. And then we attacked them and we ran away. And then we attacked them and we ran away. So first of all, you have no understanding of military history of the United States. But I didn't say to run away. I said not to engage the enemy where the enemy wants to be engaged because that's dumb. But this is, this is a problem in that you've been convinced that these people in the streets are the real enemy and they're not. There is a hidden hand at work here, and it's into a place now where you're not going to stop it. I want to say that it's so important to understand that you're not going to stop it. You're not going to stop it because it's going to require the majority of Americans to stop behaving stupidly as a group. So you tell me what the odds of that are. We're being destabilized, third world style, right now. And we're well into it. And how do you destabilize a nation? You ruin Confidence in 
it's government, specifically its electoral process. That's how you that's the textbook way the United States has destabilized governments for a hundred years. It's exactly what we've done. I, I said this the dogs of war are doing here what they've done over there, right in front of you, and you don't see it. The entire message about the 2020 election, whoever wins screwed the person who lost and cheated. It doesn't matter. If Biden wins, the people who vote for Trump will believe Biden stole the election with election fraud. If Trump wins, Trump stole the election with election fraud. And the way this is different than 2016 where they played the same game is this always comes in phases and you start with phase one, which is kind of actually minor. And sometimes it doesn't happen planned from the beginning. The other mafia family does it naturally. But if you're sitting back and you're orchestrating all this, once, again, the chess board is, is, is moved by two hands that look like they're competing with each other, but they're actually working to make it look the same. And we are human beings. We are not just chess pieces. We do make our own decisions. But as groups, we're very easy to predict our behavior. You add the technocracy, social media into this, influence of, of social media into this, the ability to make 1% of a population change its behavior, and you have tools to completely destabilize anything. So a lot of the initial squabbling was really just the Democrats thinking maybe we can get rid of Trump. Oh, look at that. It's ripe to pick now. Look at them all angry. So now we rev things up. We use the news, the news cycle. We use social media. And then we get this genius idea that we're going to have wholesale ballots just mailed to every single voter, which is dumb and ripe. It's ripe for cheating. And, of course, the right is the one screeching about it the loudest right now because they think they're going to get screwed by it. But this presupposes that nobody on the right would cheat either. Only Democrats cheat in elections. I think if you actually look at it, if you look at times people got caught, it's actually a pretty even thing. They do it differently. They get caught in different ways. But we, I can show you times where the right's been caught cheating in elections too. And most people that cheat in elections get away with it. That's very important to understand. When you start mailing ballots to people, whether they want one or not, in an unsecure environment like the United States mail, it is ripe for abuse. So what that does is if either side loses, they got screwed by cheating. And the right's screaming right now that well, there's going to be cheating, and the left will scream if Trump wins, he cheated. They said there could be cheating, and look, now there was. They were the ones talking about cheating, and vice versa. And as soon as it happens, you're going to have an eruption of violence, And you're going to go through 2021 with complete and total agitation of this and an undermining of the U.S. government. And as I've said, I believe Trump will win the election and the plan is the installation of a completely radically transformed government by 2024. And it doesn't matter if you do this in a, in a country with the destabilization plan through shooting people or through elections. The result is the same, and the pattern is the same. You do what works best in that environment. And what you will have, and you know, if you, a lot of people that think, oh, not American. If you start talking to college-age kids, and you realize how many of them are going to go from 16 and 17 and 15 to old enough to vote 
by the next presidential election and how many of them are going to vote, you can see very clearly that the game has been played right under your nose, like I've said for years, in the school system. And I'm telling you, I have nephews and nieces of my own that I can see it in, especially once they go off to college. They get completely politically screwed up, and... This is this is well orchestrated and well planned, and it is a complete destabilization plan. It is it is the same plan used in banana republics. Just instead of dragging people in the street and shooting them, you're going to have them removed through electoral process. And you, the other thing I think that people don't understand is how old the House and the Senate is in its legacy uh, members, and there's going to be a shitload of retirements. In the next couple of years. And then you're going to add on to it a new Supreme Court justice. Let me tell you how this works. Trump will nominate somebody by probably the end of this week. The Republicans will try to ram it through very quickly. It is what they should do. It's what they promised they would do. And you should do what you promised to do. So I'm not saying whoever it is. I can't say I support them or not because I don't know who it is yet. But if I hate them, it's still what Republicans should do. It's what they've promised to do. There's three rhino Republicans who don't want to do it. Romney, because anything that's associated with Trump, Romney doesn't like. Collins and Murkowski, who are both sniveling little... I just won't say it, okay? Just like, I can't... As much, I hate all of them, to be clear. But boy, they're at the top of my list for people I really hate. Especially Murkowski. Murkowski has a Senate seat because they're daddy's name. And that's the only reason why. In Alaska, you're dumb enough to keep doing it for all your talk of freedom up there. Um, man. But you know what that results in? If the Republicans keep all the other votes, 50-50, VP Pence comes in, casts a defining vote, you get a new Supreme Court justice. If it happens, you're going to get wailing, gnashing of teeth, screaming, yelling, violence, etc. If it doesn't happen, you're going to get a very pissed off right. Either way... If you're the chess players, you use it. And it's all just being dumped and on top of each other. And again, the pattern is so obvious. All you have to do is look at where the United States has destabilized a government in the past. And it's actually really interesting to look at places where it wasn't done by having the new people just come in, lay everybody on the ground and shoot them in the head. Look at like Ukraine. We were all in that. It was like, oh, look at this organic thing happening over here. Where'd that come from? We were all in on that. And it looked a lot like our streets look right now. And the people that fought the hardest to get it got screwed. And in general, all of the politicians that think they're winning get screwed. They either get put out to pasture, they get banished, right? Or they get shot. And when leftists take over, what happens is the leftists that lead the charge almost, almost never stay in charge. And an exception would be like the Castro regime in Cuba. Most places, the leftists that lead the charge get shot by further leftists who take control once the system goes. Or they get banished or ousted in some other way. And we have destabilized governments in bloody coups. And we have destabilized governments into elections, and we have put people that we wanted to put in power in power. And we never put that person or that entity in power because we actually liked them. 
We put them in power because we had an expectation of what they would do, and we wanted that thing done. That is the plan in America today. And I'm telling you, you can, you can talk all you want about fighting it. You might as well fight, fight a millstone with your back while 10 Clydesdale horses turn the machine on the top side. You're going to get ground under it. If you're inside that mill with that stone looking down at you and you hear the horses go, they're getting ready to be kind of swapped in the ass and that millstone's fixing to go, what do you do? You climb the hell out of there. You don't stay in there and say, I'm going to fight the millstone. That's what's coming right now. You're going to get ground under it. Now, once you get out, maybe you shoot the horses and eat them. I don't know. But you've got to get out of the way of the problem so that you can actually... Because we don't know exactly what this problem is going to look like yet. We know what and we know how, but we don't know the what and the how together and the way it's going to play out over time. I do know this. The big cities are powder kegs and they will be lit on fire again and again and again. And the best case scenario, the best case scenario is they don't erupt into complete violence And they still continue a downward spiral of people shitting in the streets and your home values and your business values continue to decline. So the best case scenario, you need to get out. The worst case scenario, you should have got out already. But it's up to you what you do. I'm just telling you what's going on. And I challenge any of you that disagree with me to look at the pattern of how this country's freaking operatives have destabilized governments. We figured out a long... Look up Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Look up that on YouTube and watch that. I'll see if I can find it today and put it in the, the notes for you today, if I don't forget. But if I, if I forget and you go to look at the show notes, just put Confessions of an Economic Hitman, economic hitman in YouTube, and you'll find the interview with this guy. We figured out a long time ago that a few suitcases of money could do way more than a few battalions of tanks. And it's being done right now in your own backyard. And again, the people that think they're leading the charge, they're going to get through. Look at Iran. Now, this is an example where we weren't the ones that did it. We set up the situation that led to it. But the Islamic Revolution in Iran, all those students that helped take Americans hostage, that went out on the streets and demonstrated, you know, deposed the Shah, all that shit, none of them ended up getting what they thought they were getting when Iran got its independence and freedom from the great Satan. They're all miserable as shit now. I guarantee you most of those people wish they could go back and not do it. And they can't. And once it was in motion, a person is smart. People are stupid. And the people have been put in motion at this point. And when you see anybody polarizing themselves to either side, you might as well not bother. So those people that are upset with me, I'm not really worried about them. I might tell them they're ass clowns or whatever, but I'm speaking to people that are still trying to figure out what to do. Get out of the way. And as the situation plays out, you'll figure out what you need to do next. But this whole idea of a rallying cry, we're going to go fight! Who? Where? When? How are you going to do that? Well, the American Revolution! The American Revolution had a Continental Congress. They had an organized militia. They had a plan. They agreed to certain things. Right? They declared independence. There was a very formalized process behind it. And it did start regionally before it went colony-wide, but it wasn't just a bunch of yahoos running out and shooting people because they were mad. Anyway, those who uh, don't study history are doomed to be kicked in the ass by it when it repeats itself.
Let's uh, let's take another one. Uh, on that note, somebody asked about saying a little more about frugal versus cheap in Telegram. Um, this is one of my laws of life. Always be frugal, never be cheap. With so much uncertainty about the exact way this will all play out, but, eno but enough knowledge to understand that it's all going to be a mess, th there, there's never been a time where it's more important, when it, especially when it comes to things that you were going to rely on to be frugal versus cheap. And, and the most basic way I can put it is you buy the best you can afford for the purpose at hand to last as long as possible with the lowest lifetime cost. Okay, that's frugal versus cheap. So that that means that I always use a garden hose for this, but I'm not going to go buy the $9.99 garden hose at Walmart because I know it's a piece of shit. I know it's going to make, make me miserable. It's going to kink like crazy. It's not going to last but one or two seasons, and well, I'm going to be miserable while I have it. Then I'm going to go buy another one every year. And that's probably not $9.99. It's probably $19.99 for, like, say, a 50-foot garden hose. I'm going to go buy, like, a $40 really good garden hose, like the contractor rated one that I recommend, or Craftsman makes a really good hose. There's a lot of really good hose. I'm going to buy that, because maybe it'll cost me $10, $15 more today. But five years from now, I'll still have it, even if your wife runs it over with a tractor, and you have to cut the end off and put a splice on it or something. It, you'll still have it. It'll still work, and it'll work well while you have it. When you're running into a time of destabilization and uncertainty, You, that's the time you, two is one, one is none, three is for me, four is more, five is keeps you alive, six is the kick, seven is heaven, eight is great, right? Nine is fine. Yeah, you want redundancy in there, but you don't want anything failing because you can't be sure that you're going to be able to replace it, even if you have the money. So it's just the time to start thinking, especially when it comes to garden tools, guns, reloading equipment, storage food. Stuff to make storable food into storable food, like vacuum sealers and stuff like that. You want to be looking at the, the closest thing you can find with your ability to lifetime purchases more than any time in history, I believe, right now. And then if the economy booms and everything goes away and it all turns out being wonderful, like Scott Adams says it's going to be, and I'm wrong, I'll be like, I'm so happy I was wrong, and you will be too. You will never be angry that you bought quality. I want you to think about when was the last time you said, I should never spend the money on this, it's too good. But how many times in your life have you said, it's cheap piece of shit. Cheap Chinese garbage, cheap plastic crap. How many, you've said that in your life. I bet you've never said, I should have never spent this money on something, it's too high quality. Damn, I'm pissed off that seven years later I still have this thing. Jack, you're a jerk, right? It's Yeah, you might say it as a joke, but you're not going to say it for real. Next, uh, somebody asked about industries that we can expect to grow in the coming years. That was on Telegram as well. Um, the answer is, I know, but I don't know. Because how much economic strife are we going to be under due to the destabilization that we talked about today? No, I don't know. What's going to be the value of a dollar in five years? I don't know. It'll be less than it is today. Will it buy half of what it does? Will it buy 70% of what it does today? Will it buy 10% of what it does today? I don't know. All of this matters. I think green energy is, is set to soar in a lot of ways. And I believe that for the same reason that I was able to tell you years ago, we were going to soon be energy independent in America. 
because one of all people, Shit Romney was out saying we were going to be energy independent under his administration. I'm like, well, first of all, you're not going to win. But there's certain things that people promise when they're politicians that if you hear that promise and it sounds like that's probably a good thing, and it's something you're going to be able to really measure whether it happened or not in a few years, you should check that thing out and determine if you have a lying politician, which is pretty typical, or a lying politician, which is also typical. How's that different? Well, one's lying in it's never going to happen and they're never going to do it. And one is lying in that they're claiming they're going to do it when they're not going to do anything because it's already going to happen. So if I said, if you elect me tomorrow, the sun will rise in the east and it will set in the west. Technically, I'm telling you the truth, but I'm creating a causational relationship that has nothing to do with it. And since it's so ridiculous and so preposterous, you know that I'm full of shit. It, it's not that that's not going to happen, but that's going to happen whether I'm there or not. You understand? That's what's going on with renewables and green energy right now. The reason the Democrats are so big on this Green New Deal and all this stuff, yes, they want to instill socialism, I understand, but it's because they want to ride the wave that's already there. We are already moving to a point where the cost of producing energy from, 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 from technologies like solar keeps getting so much more um, less expensive, right, that we are going to see more and more of it. And what you're going to see if it go, see if you don't do it as a centralized plan, you're going to get a de decentralized result, and they don't want that. Let me say that again: if you if you do not come up with a centralized plan to grab onto something that predisposes itself to decentralization, you're going to get a decentralized solution, and they don't want it. Do you follow that? What I mean by that is they do want as many homes in America to have solar panels on them as possible. They don't want those solar panels hooked up to battery banks and power walls in your house that are not hooked up to the grid. They don't want you off-grid. Well, I'm right, Jack. You know that because they made it illegal to be off-grid in Florida. Just stop. You don't know what you're talking about. Stop reading national news. Okay? Don't go to the crazy right away. Just go to the top-level understanding. They don't care if you are off-grid. They don't want the solution being de facto off-grid for the vast majority of people. They want the solution being on-grid for the vast majority of the people. They want a smart meter in your house. They want solar panels on your roof. They want to take your energy that you produced and move it wherever they want on the grid, whenever they want to move it there, without paying you anything for it. And they want to be able to throttle how much you can have. That's what they want. So you have to come out with a plan that leads there when you're already heading to that area and you want to, so now they have the ship is, remember I talked about the ship and say if the ship's in Tokyo and you want the ship to go to San Francisco, you need to plot a course. But if the ship just gets pushed in the right direction and nothing knocks it off course, it could get to San Francisco all by itself. Okay, well it's much more likely that if you just kind of push the ship in the right direction, a few things were done to keep it going that way, you're going to find California. But probably not San Francisco. California's got a pretty long ocean coast. It's one of the reasons it's so prosperous in spite of liberals there. So this ship is going to California. We're going to have renewables. But they want to go to San Francisco, and they want to get there at a specific time, and they want to control what it looks like. They want to control the ship. So that's 
how the renewables are going to be channeled to grow. So no matter what happens, it's going to grow. But for you as an individual, if you're looking for, like, what can I do? Well, if you learn how to build off-grid solutions, it might be a tiny portion that want it. But niches are built on tiny portions of large numbers. That would be one example of an industry that I see booming. Um, farming, gardening, all that shit, food production is going to go way up localized, decentralized. That's why they want control of that as well. Um, industries that are going to grow but yet not be beneficial to individuals who make money from them now are things like Uber and Lyft as you get more and more self-driving vehicles that 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 industry grows because it's more accessible, more affordable, and more available to more people and more used. As we have like right now 16-year-olds are getting driver's licenses at about half the rate they were 25 years ago or 35 years ago, like when I was a kid, right? When I was a kid, man, you're like, I'm going to be 16 next week, man. I'm going to get my license. You already had your learners, but I'm going to get my license. I'm going to get a car. Like, kids just aren't that way anymore. Plenty of kids are still driving, but plenty of them aren't, especially if they have a friend who has a car. Then I really don't need to do it. I know, I know young people, 22, 23 years old, that have jobs and live functional lives, and they don't own a car or have a license. They're not the most functional people, but they're bellwethers of what's coming. Like, So what you really are going to have to do is design your life with so much resiliency that if you're wanting to know what's going to blow up, you're able to capture it as it comes. Because you will know before everybody knows if you're paying attention. That's, that's the best I can do on that one without making the show go two hours today. Someone asked on MeWe, or no, this was by email, choosing between a double-wide mobile home and a stick-built home. And I, I'm really thinking for that question to show up and hadn't heard anything like it in so long, it has to do with Friday. Friday, I told this Friday or Thursday, someday this week, last week, I told a story of my buddy Brad, Army buddy, who wanted to live like a broke-ass redneck. And he had enough equity in his home and he had enough money that he had just lost his job. He could have moved back to rural Louisiana where his father was from, bought a mobile home for cash, put in a well and septic for cash, His dad had like 30 acres. There's a lot of national forests. He could basically have the life he said he wanted the next day if he just put his house on the market and went and did that. And I said, you know, buy a double-wide mobile home and throw it on there. The reason I said that is it's, it, it would have given him what he claimed he wanted for the money he had. Okay? It wasn't because I think that's the best use of your money. But to be able to get a house put in this spot relatively quickly when you have enough money to do it, that made sense. So here's my thing about manufactured versus site-built homes. There is no question that the long-term investment underlying equity value of the, the, the structure and the land that it's on is better off with a site-built home than a mobile home, period, the end, infinity. It does not mean that just because that's true, you can't make money when you come out of a property that has a mobile home on it. We bought a mobile home and five acres in Arkansas. It was almost brand new, and that guy probably did lose money on it. Close to it, anyway. Maybe he broke even for $69,000. Eight years later, we sold it for $89,500. And people will say, well, the land is what went up in value. The land in that area did not go up in value by much at all in that period. 
If you wanted raw land the day I bought that trailer and raw land the day that I sold that trailer, and this was raw, rugged, rough, steep, forested mountain land, it cost almost the same. We made money because we put nice flooring. We did some things to the inside. We made People walked in that place, put some decks on it, etc. People walked in and went, wait, this is a mobile home? When they were inside, it was hard to tell other than you kind of have that layout and that roof angle and all that. Mobile homes can be a good option. There are mobile homes in Canada from the 50s that look as nice today as the day they were put in. They have R values of something like 38 or something on insulation, by the way. They're really, really well built. They can be built incredibly cheaply or they can be built really, really well. My experience is the ones that are available today that are the best built ones you can get don't cost that much more per square foot than the ones that are complete shit. So I would say like if you want to look at a mobile home that's kind of run-of-the-mill, slapped together, okay, I would live in one. You know, but I'm not necessarily going to go out and buy one on purpose. But like, let's say Champion or Clayton, they're probably the two biggest and best known companies out there. They build an okay product. There's, it's, it's not a terrible product. But, and unfortunately, you can only get, I think you can only buy these in Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and New Mexico. I think. I'm not sure, but I think that's right. The best looking mobile homes from a construction standpoint. For all in that I've ever actually looked at, put my hands on, walked inside of, or made by a company called Solitaire. Now, if you don't live in one of the states you can buy them, I would look for something that's equivalent to their build process and construction process. You know, they're doing two by sixes versus two by fours for their walls, both external and internal walls. The metal frame underneath, so when you look underneath a mobile home, there's always a steel frame. If you look at most manufacturers, the, the, the ones that come out on the horizontal, so you have big I-beams going on the vertical. On the horizontal, you have these wings that come out. And most of them, that steel frame ends up to a foot before the edge of the wall. That means that outer wall is being supported by the floor joists and the roof joists and the, how the wall is attached to the rest of the structure, but it has no support underneath. And that's why you see those older homes start to sag on the outside. Solitaire, and I'm not saying there's nobody else does this, and maybe Clayton does now. I don't know. I haven't looked at them for years. Solitaire, that frame goes all the way to the outside edge of the wall. That's a huge difference in of itself. The finishes are done with, you know, things that look like homes are built with instead of that beady shit. And then, like, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? The flooring is higher end flooring. Everything is done right in those homes. And if you're going to buy one, I'm going to tell you, I don't have another brand to recommend. And maybe Clayton or Champion, I, I don't want to, you know, MF some company that doesn't deserve it. I'm just telling you from what I've seen in the past, and I haven't looked this way, like evaluating whether or not this works for me for at least 15 years. So things have changed in that time. But these are the types of things to look for. And if even within the same manufacturer, if you know that when you go in, you can just start with, I only want to see your top-of-the-line stuff. I don't want to see your entry-level anything, and I'm not talking about size. I'm talking I want to see the most quality construction that you have. And I would shop multiple locations like that for that highest quality construction and look at things that people tend to not look at, like fit and finish of miters and things like that, because the company that pays attention to the little shit pays attention to the big shit. 
in, in the grand scheme of things, if you give me a choice, I will take a site-built home under the right circumstances over a mobile home. But I will not refuse to consider the mobile home option. Because what you can often do with a mobile home is get a really big home for the money. Now, again, this was years ago, but I went to Solitaire and said, show me the biggest and best you have. And I think if I did everything that I could do to a house, like where the guy was just like, that's it. We don't have anything else we can do for you. It's the biggest. It's got an add-on. It's got this. It's got a built-in porch. It's got high-end furnishings as far as the cabinets. It's got the upgraded floors. It's got every... This is it. It's all we got. $138,000. And it was something like 3,400 square feet. You can't even begin to do a site-built home for anything approaching that. And I'm telling you, these things, 15 years ago anyway, were built unbelievably well. So if you're going to go there... My, there's my two reasons to go there. One, it's a really great piece of property, and that's what it comes with. And I can work with what's there. Two, I'm buying raw land. And based on my budget and my goals, this gives me more of what I want than any other option. Because it's also, the other thing about it is, depending on the situation you're in, it's quick. Generally, it can be a month or less. You order what you want, they build it in a factory, they put it on a truck, and they set it up. And when you build, man, and the more you take control of a build, the more you specify. The other thing is, you go say, I want this house built this way. And a contractor says, okay, that's going to be $195,000. Sure. Okay. It's not. By the time you're done, it's going to be significantly more. If you order a mobile home exactly the way that you want it and pick everything you want and they say this is $138,421.37, that's how much it's going to be. So, And you're starting off with brand new appliances. You see what I'm saying? So that's where it's either the property works and that's what's there. or And then my other thing is, well, where are you going to live? If you live in a place with a lot of swirling vortex clouds of death... That puts a demerit on living in a mobile home. If you're going to live in a place that's really, really cold, unless you have a really upgraded R-factor insulation, that puts a demerit on it. If you live in a place where it's not likely to get a, a, a tornado or super strong windstorms or whatever, if you plan on living there for the rest of your life and it's a quality construction, you're not going to worry about how much you're going to sell it for. That's you got all these things have to factor in. This is one of those things, if I'm actually looking at the individual situation, I can give you a very firm recommendation. Here's this piece of property. Here's the money we have. Here's the option for a site-built house. Here's the option for a mobile home. Here's what we can get. Here's what we want in our life. And I think if you can do that, you can probably figure it out yourself. But when you ask it as an immaterial concept, one versus the other period, it's very difficult because it depends one more before we finish up. Planning for climate change when it comes to growing your own food from Telegram. The person there didn't use the word climate change. They used grand solar minimum and the temperatures are going to get colder. This is a highly possible scenario in spite of the AGW religious zealot maniacs. It is actually highly probable over the next two or three solar cycles that we could be going into one of the periods of the least solar activity of all time, 
And our planet could dramatically cool. That is highly possible. It's highly possible that it won't do the square root of F all anything, and it won't really get much colder or much warmer, and you have these you know, half degrees here and there and variabilities, but then the overall aggregate average really isn't that much warmer, especially when you find NOAA putting their temperature sensors over top of parking lots or behind garages with vent fans that artificially inflate their numbers or some other shit like that. Um, there is a natural ebb and flow to the cycle of the Earth and its temperatures, and we are living in a time of relative stability. And we have convinced ourselves as human beings that's the way the planet works. And the truth is, for the history of the planet, stability is not the norm. Stability is not the norm. You hear this, I mean, blatant lies. We're hitting new record temperatures every day. No, we're not. No, we're not. You know what? Do yourself a little experiment if you doubt me. Go look up, state by state, the year with the highest record temperature that you can find. And you will find the vast majority of the states within the United States will have their record high temperature somewhere between the 19-teens and the 1930s. The vast majority, not all, but the vast majority will have had their highest temperature ever in that period of time. You know, during the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl, really, yeah, it sucked. That said, man, see, this is the thing we're saying, 99% of scientists agree that man is altering the planet. And the climate of the planet. Yes, and so do I. So do I. I just think focusing on CO2 is really stupid. Because I don't think that's the big problem. I think deforestation is a huge problem. And I, I wanted to read something for you guys. Because we have a disastrous prediction out from the United Nations. Let me read this to you. United Nations, a senior UN environmental official who says entire nations could be wiped off the face of the earth by rising sea levels if global warming trend is not reversed in the next 10 years. Coastal flooding and crop failures would create an exodus of eco-refugees, threatening political chaos, said Noel Brown, director of the New York Office of the United Nations Environment Program, or UNEP. You know this guy knows his shit, man. He is the UN Environment Program director out of New York, man. So you've got to listen to him. He said governments have a 10-year window of opportunity to solve the greenhouse effect before it goes beyond human control. As the warming melts polar ice caps, ocean levels will rise by up to three feet, enough to cover the Maldives and other flat island nations, Brown told the Associated Press in an interview on Wednesday. Coastal regions will be inundated. One-sixth of Bangladesh could be flooded, displacing a fourth of its 90 million people. A fifth of Egypt's arable land in the Nile Delta would be flooded, create, cutting off its food supply, according to joint UNEP and U.S. Environmental Protection Agency study. Ecological refugees will become a major concern. And what's worse is you may find that people can move to drier ground, but the soils and natural resources may not support life. Africa doesn't have to worry about land, but you would, would you want to live in the Sahara, he said? UNEP estimates it would cost the United States at least $100 billion to protect its east coast alone. Shifting climate patterns would bring back the 1930s Dust Bowl conditions. Huh, maybe Jack's not making shit up about that after all. To Canadian U.S. wheatlands, while the Soviet Union could reap bumper crops if it adapts to agriculture in time, according to the study by UNEP and the International Institute of Applied Systems Analysis. Excess carbon dioxide is pouring into the atmosphere because of humanity's use of fossil fuels burning the rainforest. The study says the atmosphere is returning more heat than it radiates much like a greenhouse. The most conservative estimate is the Earth's temperature will rise from 1 to 7 degrees in the next 30 years, said Brown. 
Well, that's a pretty big variable, Brown. I'm not going to read the rest of this to you, except I want to go back to the top, and I want to read the title and the header for you. Associate Press, United Nations predicts disaster if global warming is not checked, by Peter James Spielman, published June 29th, 1989. It's real. You can go read it. This is exactly what they were saying in 1989. I remember, because I was old enough to pay attention, even back then. June 29th, 1989, we had only 10 years to act, or all this shit was going to happen. And you know what's happened out of it in 30 years? Nothing. And that's what they always do. We only have 10 years to act, and in 30 years, it's the end of the world. Well, 10 years happened, action didn't happen, 30 years happened, and the end of the world didn't happen. What's my point here? My point is, they don't know. They don't know. I also don't know what the next 30 years has in store for us as far as the temperature on the planet and our environment and our ecosystems. I know that we're going to do immense damage to the planet in the next 30 years in many ways that have nothing to do with the, 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 the air you fart or exhale. I know that. Or that cows fart. I know that cows are not a bad thing because cows have replaced the 50 million buffalo that used to run around here all the time, just as God intended before we put highways and, and, and freaking barbed wire in, that ruminants are a natural part of the ecosystem. I'm not worried about cow farts. I'm worried about CAFOs. I'm worried about the runoff that they create into our water systems. I'm worried about what that does. I'm worried about dead zones in our ocean. I'm worried about overfishing. I'm worried about non-sustainable farming methods that continuously dump chemicals onto our fields. I'm worried about the fact that the number one export from the United States is topsoil. Did you know that? The number one thing this country exports by tonnage is topsoil. Some of you are like, wait a minute. I've never seen a ship taking topsoil to China. No, you didn't. Because we don't get anything for it. Oh, you thought I meant like export like we send it to Germany and China and Japan for our trade. No, no. We export it in the wind and in the water through erosion into our oceans because of bad management practices. We, up, we, we, we export enough freaking topsoil to feed ourselves from what can be grown from it annually. And we aren't building it anywhere near as fast. Yes, there are massive alterations to our climate that man is, is causing to happen. And it's, it, it's all things that I've said in the past. If you actually put the messaging together right, 90% of people would be on board with, let's fix that. No one wants freaking hydrofluorocarbons dumped into our ocean. Nobody wants mercury dumped into the ocean and into our streams. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants arable land turned into desert. Nobody wants that. But we're doing it. And what does it all mean for climate? Some places will get warmer. Some places will get colder. Some places will get wetter. Some places will get drier. And you don't know what's going to happen, and neither do they. And anybody that says they do is full of shit. They're full of shit. So what do you do? It's very simple. It's going to sound so simple, you're going to be like, huh, why didn't I think of that? Design your food production to be resilient if you go one climate zone higher or one climate zone lower. That's it. That's all. If you're in zone seven, design a system that will work in zone six or zone eight. If you get lots of rain, design a system that will work without lots of rain. 
If you get very little rain, design a system that will still work if you get lots of rain. Here's the good news. Basic, solid permaculture design will do this by de facto. It will just happen. Regenerative agriculture does this. Mark Shepard's new forest farm, if it gets colder in the already cold-ass place that he does it, will kill, still work. And if it gets warmer, it will still work. If it gets drier, it will still work. And if it gets wetter, it will still work. That's what you do. You design for where you are, and you design to go wetter or drier, and you design to go hotter or colder by at least one climate zone and by a rain in impact factor of at least 25%. You can get by with 25% less rain. You can get by with 25% more rain. You can get by being a zone 6 or a zone 8, and you're right now a zone 7. And it ain't that hard. What about polytunnels? Sure. Okay. As long as you know why you're doing it, what you're going to do, and how long it's going to last. You know that the plastic that goes on those wears out in time, it's designed to. It's not a permanent structure. You know, maybe an earth-sheltered greenhouse, Paul Wheaton style, makes more sense for a homesteader than a polytunnel. You know what a polytunnel is for? Somebody that wants to grow enough food to sell to market. That's what a polytunnel is for. Or enough plants to sell to market. That's what a polytunnel is for. A polytunnel is not for a homesteader. It is a system designed to break down over time and be replaced. Now, when would you use one? Well, a good friend of mine named Michael found a whole shitload of them from a nursery that went out of business. We could get the frames for next to nothing. Okay. And you can put better quality plastic that lasts longer and what have you. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't have one. I'm saying if you're going to invest from the beginning, you should, you should invest, like frugal versus cheap, invest what it does the most for you. How much food do you need to grow for your family? And what's the most efficient way to do that? I mean, here's the thing. We have people gardening in Alaska, and we have people very successfully gardening in Costa Rica. To think that, oh, well, if the climate changes, I won't be able to produce my own food anymore is asinine. If you're growing at the edge of what your region will support, sure. And if you want to do that, then don't do more than maybe 10% of your production that way. And no, what would you switch to? If it gets dramatically cooler and rainfall goes up, and I'm in the south, I might switch from sweet potatoes to regular potatoes, and I probably went to sweet potatoes in the first place because I tried regular potatoes and they didn't like the hot, dry climate. It's, it, this is not difficult to do. It really isn't. Now, for large-scale agriculture, different subject, different day, there might be some real food problems in the future. But if you think climate change is the most existential, existential threat to America today, you don't understand the destabilization that's going on right in front of you. That's a much bigger problem. That's a much bigger problem. Socialism is a bigger threat than climate change. Now, I didn't say a bigger threat than environmental degradation. Climate change is real, but it's also mostly regional. And it's caused by regional decisions. And sometimes those regions are really large, like the entire Mississippi River system for instance, just for one. Like the South Florida agricultural and subdivision system that creates red tides that destroy ocean life for another. Like the shitty management of forests in the West Coast for another. You see how that works? 
These are all things that cause massive climatic events. They're just specific to certain areas. And then that has a larger impact on the overall ecosystem. You ain't going to change it because the people that are in charge, the ones that are selling you environmentalism, have no interest in changing those things. They just have an interest in making you into more of a battery than you already are inside the matrix. So what do you do? You refuse to play the game, and you find what you can shepherd, and you do the right thing on your half acre or four acres or three acres or ten acres or a hundred. That's what you do. You build the things the way you think they should be built, and you prove that they work. And you design resiliency. When we did the food forest, I, I was part of a design team that did the first ever public food forest design in Montana with Dave Jackie. And that was one of Dave's insistences. Now, he's a big believer in global warming. So he wanted to design things for global warming. But it took about a half a second to convince them to also design resiliency for the other direction because you didn't know. Didn't mean he changed his stance by any means on it. But he did admit, sometimes global warming causes global cooling. And we, we need to design these systems to go up uh, one and down one. Really, really simple, actually, believe it or not. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, one of the ways you can help support this show and the work that we do is do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you go there, you can help support the show and the work that we do, no matter what you buy. Um, just start there is all you got to do. You'll also find my items of the day. Today's item of the day is Star West Botanicals Whole Chamomile Flowers. And um, I actually changed them today from Frontier Whole Chamomile Flower Tea. and forgot to change the titles. I'm going to fix that now. And I'll tell you why I did that. Well, I was going to run the Frontier Organics um, product today is the item of the day. When I pulled it up, it wasn't available at a reasonable price. Third-party sellers only. Uh, Frontier Direct was out. And if you read my write-up today, there's a lot of cool stuff in it, but at the, in the PS you'll find that there are three companies when it comes to bulk herbs and teas on Amazon that I, if they have what I'm looking for, I won't hesitate to buy it. And that's Davidson's, Frontier, and Star West Botanicals. So I always try in my write-ups to, to give you more that you can use than just, hey, buy this thing. Like, oh, buy this thing because it makes me a dollar or whatever. No. I try to give you things like there are three different tea recipes in this and there's a lot of other things that you can do with chamomile like you know if you're doing sunflower sprouts for your ducks you throw a little pinch of it in every time you do your soaker bucket and you don't get fungus and mold infusing it into water and sugar syrup when you're feeding your bees is good for your bees those are just and you would learn that if you read the write-up so read the write-up check it out i mean i've got a lot of cool things including how to make three flowers blend for a mead that has become a phenom in the world of meads. This is a mead that it, I, I can I can honestly say, this is my mead. There's a lot of meads I make. And they go, I made your apricot meader. I mean, no, you didn't. I just follow a standard a number of amount of fruit to a gallon, whatever, and thousands of other people have done it. Three Flowers Mead is my creation. It uses chamomile, heather, and elderflower. And it is amazing. And you can make that, and I tell you how to make it. I tell you all the cool things about this product in the write-up today. And if you wanted to get the write-up without having to go to the site and scroll down and try to find it, either get on the Daily Mail, which you can go to the site and click on Daily Mail and fill out a thing, you get an email every day, or get on the Telegram channel. Every time I publish something new, I put the link out on the Telegram channel. And again, on the channel, you only hear from me. And you will never miss stuff like this. And sometimes 
I even put things out on either the mail or the Telegram channel that you won't know about by just listening to the show. Or you find out sooner, like, yeah, I don't know, I get a price alert and there's five of something left and they all sell out by the time the show comes out. It happens. And that's why I get on the Telegram channel, because the mail won't, won't fix that problem for you. All right, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with the song of the day. Um, I got an email from John Adam last week. He's like, man, are you going to go back to using the songs I provide you, or did you decide and didn't tell? Nah, we're going to go back to John Adam next week. Monday, we're going back. to I think I still have some in the bank from him. He kind of became our musical program director. But I just kind of got on this hair for a while. Like He did my music for like two and a half years. I, I barely picked out a song, and I just kind of wanted to. And this weekend, while my wife was gone, I was out cleaning fish, cooking on the grill, hanging out with the dogs, having a drink, watching the ducks play. And I put on some of my really chill music. Like the music that's just like, man, this is, you know, you got a day that's like 75 degree temperatures and you're in the shade with a ceiling fan running and a grill going and a cold drink and a dog sitting next to you. Like, this is music meant for this. And uh, I put out a little video that they, they took off of YouTube. And that's actually a song that you will hear this week uh, by Van Morrison. That's not today's song. Today's song is from Chris Stapleton, and it's What Are You Listening To? And this is one of those songs I was kind of talking about last week, like how music, when I talked about songs that had a specific point in my life, I think I mentioned this song even though I didn't play it, where like there's songs that take me back to a specific point in time. But music does that for people, and there's songs that even if they take us back to different places and different times, the same song does it for both of us, and it creates a common bond and a point of conversation and a point of understanding each other. This song's actually about that very thing, that somewhere across the world, somewhere across time, somewhere across space, there's this other person, this lost love, and he knows, he doesn't know what, but she's out there somewhere listening to something while he's doing the same thing. And I told my wife, we were, I was talking about this week and the songs I wanted to play and these kind of chill-out songs. I told her, I said, this is one of those songs that, yeah, the words are great and all, but just the sound of this. This guy's voice was made to sing this song. And so by the end of this week, you'll have five songs that you can make a base of a playlist for those chill-out moments. I'd recommend this as the first one. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Just like me, trying to figure out how it 
And I let it play 